Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for being with us tonight. Now, tell your friends it's easy to join us. Tell them just go to the Apple TV app store on their smart TV and there I am, ADH. And don't forget the website, check it out, ADH.TV. A great show for you tonight. I'll look at the John Barillaro fiasco in New South Wales and the real problem with employers finding workers. Is it an immigration and a visa crisis? It sure as hell is. Only today, for example, we learn that Sydney City is in the midst of a garbage collection, farce, vermin-infested rubbish piling up throughout the city, staff shortages. Plenty of skilled workers are wanting to come to Australia, but the visa system is a shambles. 83 days, if you're lucky, to be issued with a short-term temporary skilled visa, 83 days. I'll have more to say about that. And then corruption in public administration, that is government in Queensland. Now, the former Queensland University of Technology Vice-Chancellor, Professor Peter Coldrake, has issued a scathing review of the culture and accountability, or lack of it, in the Palaszczuk government. At the centre of this, Labor lobbyists making a big quid through their unaccountable and apparently unrecorded access to government and its ministers. Professor Coldrake has brought down the hammer. And joining me will be the former Deputy Prime Minister, John Anderson, who's doing outstanding work with his web-based interview program, Conversations with John Anderson. When I spoke to him last, he said to me, and I quote, I'm deeply concerned with the way in which we're tearing ourselves apart. We have to learn the good and the bad in our history, but without our history, we are adrift. There is a concerted effort to delegitimize our past and make it a thing that people would certainly never celebrate, unquote. I look forward to talking with John Anderson. I know you'll enjoy it as well. And we go to Britain to talk to David Maddox, the political editor, editor of The Express Online. The instability of our democracies is at work in Britain. Both leaders, Boris Johnson and Sir Keir Starmer, seem to be in trouble. We'll gain the inside stories from David Maddox and you can share your views with me as well. Just email me at alanjones at adh.tv. Look, the significant media attention surrounding the appointment of the former New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro as the New South Wales Trade Commissioner to America has provoked seemingly endless inquiries and equally endless contradictory conclusions. Everyone in the Perrottet government seems to be running for cover. I must be the only taxpayer who thinks that if someone is going to be appointed to such a prestigious job on $500,000 of taxpayers' money, then the government we elect should be making the decision. I should say I have no problem with John Barillaro getting the job. He's able, he's committed, he's often outspoken, and he has an excellent capacity to communicate with people at their level. But that seems to have escaped sensible debate. I repeat, if taxpayers' money, $500,000, is to go to the appointment of anyone, how is it that the government can throw its hands up and say, this has nothing to do with us. We're not responsible for deciding who gets $500,000. That's not the decision of the government. That's the decision of someone you've never heard of. Who the hell is running the state on such a critical issue? It's clear that the elected government isn't. Now they're tying themselves up with all sorts of inquiries, costing tens of thousands of taxpayers' dollars, even an inquiry to investigate the hiring process. 
Surely as plain as the nose on your face, the hirer must be the government. To those in the Perite government jumping up and down and saying, this is a disaster, it's only a disaster because the process is a disaster. I'm not the only person who can't comprehend how, if you're going to shovel out $500,000 of taxpayers' money, the government whom we elect doesn't decide to whom the money should go? Well, it should. This business about government being at arm's length is a cover for political cowardice. Government is there to safeguard our money, which we give to them, not to waste, but to be properly accountable for, and for government to choose the best people, not some bureaucrat. It'll eventually come to light that Gladys Berejiklian made many decisions as Premier without consulting anyone except a little cabal of political sycophants. That business about a New South Wales Resilience Commissioner was a Berejiklian appointment without Cabinet discussion and with a budget of over $700 million and goodness knows how many staff, and that's supposed to lead in disaster management. Now, you've heard Janelle Safin on this program say that in relation to the Lisbon floods, Resilience New South Wales were a complete failure, a nine-to-five outfit. So here's a bloke, a Resilience Commissioner, also earning somewhere approaching $500,000, and he's given the gig by government. But the Trade Commissioner to America is not appointed by the government, but he's also on $500,000. I guess we'll eventually know who did what, but there are suggestions that Berejiklian as Premier gave the Trade Commissioner a job to a public servant. Reports in the last week suggest that the Deputy Secretary, Jenny West, of an outfit we've never heard of, Trade and International, was told in August last year by Gladys Berejiklian that she had the job. And Investment New South Wales was reportedly close to issuing a press release to announce the position. Indeed, the Executive Director at Trade and Investment New South Wales wrote in an email, and I quote, I think we're close to being able to announce New York and the others will probably be ready to go sometime in September, unquote. Barilaro was still in the parliament then. So Berejiklian tells this woman, Jenny West, in August last year, she's got the gig. By September, someone's decided to not offer her the job. And October 3, last year, the Chief Executive Officer of Investment New South Wales, Amy Brown, reportedly told a representative of the recruiting firm, NGS Global, that the job would now be a ministerial appointment and that the recruiting agency, NGS Global, would no longer require it. Well, now, in spite of all this nonsense that the government had to be at arm's length and it wasn't a government appointment, the head of Investment New South Wales, Amy Brown, in writing, stated that Investment New South Wales had, quote, confirmed instructions, unquote, to convert trade commissioner positions to, quote, ministerial appointments. So the head of Investment New South Wales, Amy Brown, is saying the position would be a ministerial appointment but the Premier of New South Wales, Dominic Perrottet, has reportedly said that the same Amy Brown, Chief Executive of Investment New South Wales, that she was the decision maker. Read the appointments. Do you get the impression that no one seems to know what's going on? Berejiklian gives the gig to a woman. That offer's withdrawn. The lady in question, I might add, then leaves the public service. Barilaro gets the job. And Investment New South Wales say it was a ministerial appointment. But the Premier of New South Wales says it wasn't. The government's running for cover. And then Dominic Perrottet was forced to tell Parliament last week that two of the six trade commissioner positions 
did go to cabinet, but, quote, they were submitted to cabinet in error, unquote. In error? Premier, you're kidding. It's a $500,000 job. We expect cabinet to decide. Yet Amy Brown, the chief executive officer of Investment New South Wales, reportedly wrote to staff on August 19 last year that the process of these appointments going to cabinet was, quote, completely inappropriate, having previously said that they were ministerial appointments. I'll tell you what's completely inappropriate. Government not being accountable for shelling out $500,000 to someone, anyone, appointed by a bureaucrat via a process no one understands, which is full of contradictions. This all spells to me disarray in capital letters. Well, my first guest tonight is the former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, John Anderson, in which office he served for six years while leader of the National Party. It was a distinguished parliamentary career, yet many would say, and I'm one of them, that John Anderson's contribution post-parliamentary life almost mirrors everything he did in government. The reason I say that is that he's launched a web-based interview program, Conversations with John Anderson. It's compulsory viewing, discussions with intellectuals in layman's language from every walk of life and from all over the world. It's because of an outstanding political and post-political career that John Anderson was accorded Australia's highest honour in the Queen's birthday honours list, a companion of the Order of Australia, AC. When I last spoke to John last year, it was at a time when he was seeking a different tone in federal politics. And he said to me, and I quote him, we're deeply divided by the poison of identity politics, which so powerfully pits us against one another and so denigrates our past that we feel unworthy and unable to defend the benefits and the values that our forebears fought so hard to secure for us. He further said, I'm deeply concerned with the way in which we are tearing ourselves apart. We have to learn the good and the bad in our history. But without our history, he said, we are adrift. There is a concerted effort to delegitimize our past and make it a thing that people would certainly never celebrate, unquote. Outstanding sentiments. John Anderson's making a welcome intellectual injection in a national life, and he joins me. John Anderson, thank you for your time, but I must congratulate you on your honour. It's much deserved. Well done. Well, Alan, you're very kind. I should say I share it with Julia and with a whole lot of good Australians doing incredible things. In many ways, all I've done is walk their journey with them. I almost feel guilty that some of those people are <laughs> not recognised to the extent that they should be. You're far too modest. Can I just go to the issue of the 21, uh, 2021 census very briefly, which indicated that the number of Australians who are not religious has further increased. And you called on those, quote, dancing on the grave of Christianity to explain their quote-unquote better alternative amid an increasingly broken up and divided Australian society. Just for our viewers, amplify that point, John. Well, the census reveals a great deal of very troubling information as well. Uh, we have uh, a major concern across the community about health, and number one is mental health. We know from the research that our young people um, are experiencing anxiety, depression, self-harm at record rates. Uh, we have a million children now growing up uh, or a million single parent homes, so more than a million. We know that's suboptimal. Uh, I don't want to sound harsh about it. We know it's suboptimal and the numbers are increasing. Uh, we are polarised. The research makes it plain that we are less trusting of our leaders and the institutions that they're in. One thing to lose confidence in your leaders, 
That can be fixed by different leaders. You lose confidence in your institutions, you're in real trouble. We look like a less and less coherent society, and yet it seems that those who would label themselves progressives, not sure I accept the term, say the answer to the problem is to drive harder with the things that have created the problem. Meanwhile, we have no coherent national narrative or common set of beliefs. So I do see, I'm troubled by it, Alan, as somebody who, who, who just thinks this is the most fantastic society to live in. Wonderful, wonderful sentiments. You said recently that you were aghast at the reluctance in this country to engage in sophisticated debate. And you argue that the climate crisis will not be solved with knee-jerk policy reactions. But John Anderson, the new government is seeking to legislate its response to the so-called climate crisis. What do you make of that? Well, I think legislation is a shocking alternative. It gets to this problem where we want to hand everything over to experts rather than say to the government we've elected, this is your job and we'll cast judgment on you in three years time. Legislating will simply open up for legal warfare everywhere as activists use every opportunity to stop every development. But Alan, you know, the greatest, what I was saying there, the greatest challenge to us confronting any number of issues, including climate change, is in fact the debate. It's not the issue, it's the debate. And you think about climate change, catastrophism, uh, you know, unprecedented, unparalleled, record set, humanity finished. 50% of Australians think we contribute between 10 and 20% of the global problem. You don't find that extremist language in the very intergovernmental panel on climate change's own documentation. It's not there. We're frightening the living daylights out of our young people. Politicians and the media, rather than encouraging a rational and sensible debate, are going for the emotional tearjerkers and it threatens us all. Yes, I mean, you've said, John Anderson said, I'm aghast at the superficiality and the emotionalism of the climate debate because it's a serious issue, but it demands a much more comprehensive understanding of what we're doing. John, would you concede that understanding, the kind of understanding we seek of the real issue doesn't exist, that the debate is characterised by cliches and rhetoric that, as you say, instil fear. But my concern is especially to the young people. Yeah, I, look, I absolutely agree. Look, everything, you and I have known one another for a long time. I think our approach would be, yes, there are lots of challenges in life. The best way to overcome them is to sit down rationally, calmly, with even excitement. Here's a challenge to overcome. But the attitude now seems to be, this is going to overcome us and we'll let it wash over the top of us. And I think that's really worrying. On the issue of what to believe, now, I'm not a scientist. I'm not. I am a farmer. So I sit here and I think I'm told I must listen to the science. Okay, now as a reasonably intelligent bystander, I can say the science on what's happening to our climate is broadly agreed. What's not agreed, and you won't find any agreement on it, is what it means, the modelling. And we're placing our faith in making public policy decisions on the modelling and on emotion and on fear and on, on, on um, you know, uh, extreme catastrophization of the issue rather than calm reason, Quite. which nearly guarantees that we'll get it wrong. Quite. Why can't we learn from Germany, the greenest country in Europe? Its green policies have now seen the country reduced economically to the point where major industries are saying they're going to have to close. They are bankrolling Russia's war on Ukraine, thanks to poorly planned green policy. And as a farmer, they're now handing the Russians control of the global grain market, 
and the threat of food catastrophization, if I can use that word again, around the globe is now massive. That's what poor policy planning yes, can do. Yes, I mean, you made this point by saying, you talked about knee-jerk policy reactions from politicians and the media, and then you say, who are not scientists or engineers. And you say, this problem will be solved in the end by scientists and engineers, but we're not listening to them. Uh, yep. Will we ever listen? Well, this is the great question, isn't it? I mean, uh, Frank Ferruti, one of the people I have on those conversations, yes. he said to me, you know, the old divide between left and right is almost meaningless, and I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth here, but what he seemed to be saying was the, the split now is between people who follow the heart all the time without balancing it with this, mm -hmm. and those who, in their time-honoured way, go after reason, the data, calm debate, vigorous debate, nothing wrong with that, right. and avoid personal attacks. But we don't get any of that no, in, in the West. Let's not single out our country. Yes, It's a Western it is problem. A, it is a Western problem. You've had a lot to say about global order and your concern and mine that we're inculcating in our young people that they will inherit such a nightmarish culture that it's not worth defending. I keep wondering, John, how has this come about? Oh, look, I think the answers to that, are, I don't think they are so hard to find. You really have got an enormous movement called cultural Marxism, which began in Frankfurt and Germany in the 1920s. Academics frustrated that the working parties were not rebelling the way they were meant to. Uh, what do we do? Why aren't they? Well, it's the institutions that hold society together. It's family, it's the courts, it's the judicial systems, it's the parliaments, it's the churches, it's the education system. Let's get into them and undermine them, and that's what academia's done. Yes. I mean, th that academia could have been captured by critical theory, and it has been, is astonishing. That's a whole new subject in its own. And even Absolutely. Stephen Pinker says that this intellectual flim-flam should have taken hold is mind-boggling and very dangerous. Absolutely. You argue that the Russian-Ukraine situation is a sobering warning of what we would be in for without global order, and you quote Thucydides, often regarded as the father of scientific history, an Athenian historian who lived until about 400 BC, who said, the strong do what they want and the weak suffer what they must. And you say that China now seeks to overthrow this global order in our region and that no country will pay a higher price in terms of the loss of its way of life, should China succeed, than Australia. John Anderson, former Deputy Prime Minister, are we sufficiently prepared to meet this challenge? Do we even understand it? Emphatically not. I love history. We were ready for the First World War. Little country, four and a half million, geared up, got a first class navy, it secured the homeland. We were not ready for the Second World War. My father was in the 9th Division in the Middle East. He nearly lost his life. Australia was woefully unprepared. We didn't even have submarines to tackle the submarines that the Japanese were using and the Germans on our coastline. We were ready in the Cold War. It didn't turn into a hot war because the West believed in itself and we had strong leadership and military capability. This time around, you know, we've not so much been asleep at the wheel as comatose. Your outstanding podcast, Conversations with John Anderson, you've spoken to three of the world's experts on warfare and its economic repercussions. You argue they mount a powerful case for effective economic and military intervention in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. What form, John, should that intervention take? Do you know, I, I almost have to take that on notice because I'm not quite sure what you can do now. The sanctions don't appear to be working. No. We, we've got a situation here, frankly, where the Germans 
are pumping a lot more money into Mr. Putin's coffers, yep. a fortune, because gas and oil prices have gone through the roof, yes. uh, and uh, than they actually contributing to the Ukrainians' defence of their homeland. Quite. I'm going to have to pass and say I wish. Well, well Professor, I knew. in that podcast which I heard, Professor Victor Davis Hanson said we should be sending as many anti-tank weapons and javelin missiles to Ukraine as quickly as possible, and Hanson was optimistic that Putin's forces could be repelled. What I prospect? I agree with that. I agree with that. But when I say I don't know, I just wonder whether the willpower's there. Yes. Because another one of my guests, Neil Ferguson, said the greatest danger in this war yes. is that we will stop paying attention and let it drift out of our consciousness. Mm. The Australian people are smarter than the pundits give them credit for. The Lowy Institute research gets that the Australian people recognise that these global military threats are more serious than climate change. What prospect do they offer, these men to whom you speak, the experts, of Putin's own people overthrowing him? Uh, not a great deal, would mm. be the answer. Uh, Kissin, uh, Konstantin Kissin, himself a Russian, said, we need to, uh, what, the thing you've got to understand about Russia is that they briefly flirted with democracy. They didn't know how to handle it when Gorbachev, uh, you, know, uh, you know, tore down the wall, and it was a disaster. They weren't prepared for it. They, it was such a terrible experience. Putin gave them back order. If nothing else, he got order go back into the country. And they may not love him, but they respect him for you know, giving them a society that's in some way ordered again. So I'd say, generally speaking, not terribly positive. Just finally, before we go, because I could talk to you forever, and it's magnificent. And to my viewers, you plug your ears, John Anderson. I know what you're all thinking out there. What on earth are we doing without this man in the parliament? It's just a nonsense, isn't it? But John, just finally, in one of those podcasts, you talked about really the enemy being within. That yep. is our own failure to understand our own ability to be confident of who yep. we are in our own country. How bad is that disease? I actually am beginning to think it's very serious indeed. And it's funny, you know, it's the old, what is it? The, the, the exception is often what proves the rule. It's the number of young people who come up to me and say, you know, I'm, I, 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 I tap into what you're saying, what your guests are saying, because I get that I'm being fed a monochrome diet Absolutely. of talking our society, our culture, everything it stands for, down. Absolutely. And the great question, I go back to where we started in terms of the census, the society that we're building with all of the evident problems, they're all there in the research, they're all there in the data, you don't have to look, it is not going well. Do you really think more of the same is the answer? It's time we went back to the crossroads and said, what was it that made our country great? What did our forebears believe in? What did they stand for? Why are we failing to be worthy of what they gave us? Because I think we are failing. Good on you. Wonderful stuff. We must talk again. Great to talk to you, John. There he is, John Anderson, former Deputy Prime Minister, former leader of the National Party, Deputy PM to John Howard, and making very significant intellectual contributions to Australia. We can't hear enough of him, and I hope we'll listen to him again. John Anderson. Look, wherever I turn, I'm confronted by businesses, large and small, throwing their arms up in the air and arguing they can't get staff. And it's not business specific, it's everywhere. And it's not new, whether it be workers in regional Australia on farms or workers needed in city retail or restaurants or specialist employment like physiotherapists, the list is as long as your arm. Australians can't get workers. Today, we learn, as I said earlier, that Sydney City is in the midst of a garbage collection crisis, uncollected bins and rubbish piling up throughout the city, vermin-infested rubbish. The problem, not the only one, I might add, staff shortages. But think of it, 
vermin-infested rubbish and rats. Horrendous stuff. No one prepared to work. Of course, this is a consequence of the necessary closure of our borders once the pandemic struck. But international borders have been open six months. And the reality is the capacity to manage international people coming into Australia is virtually in a state of gridlock. People require visas. The Department of Home Affairs, as the visa authority, and the Australian Border Force, which manages our airports, faced budget cuts in the March budget. How smart was that? The challenges are massive, the problems are enormous, and those who know say they'll take years to address. Now, the movement of Chinese citizens has been slow to return. That's a result of COVID restrictions in China and, of course, diplomatic tensions between the two countries. The movement of Indian citizens to Australia, a valuable cohort, has in fact returned to pro, uh, pre-pandemic levels. But the movement of skilled permanent residents is about half the level it was before the start of the pandemic. Treasury is forecasting an increase in net migration. That hasn't materialised, but then Treasury never get it right, do they? There are simply critical labour shortages and international movements haven't recovered to the extent that those shortages are being addressed. Now, the Prime Minister last week revealed plans to reassign public servants to urgent visa processing. There are allegedly almost half a million job vacancies, but tens of thousands of unresolved visa applications. There is a new Immigration Minister, Andrew Giles, who said this month that fixing the complex and cluttered visa system would make Australia an internationally competitive destination for skilled workers. Well, that may be so, but you've got to fix the visa system first. The government would have you believe it's trying to attract labour for critical sectors to support economic recovery. But currently, it takes from between 30 days to more than 15 months to process an SC482 temporary visa. That's one where employers are allowed to bring in skilled workers if they can't source an appropriately skilled Australian worker. 13 days to 15 months to process. God. A short-term temporary skilled visa takes 83 days to finalise, but a quarter of the applications are taking at least one year to process. The slowest 10% of temporary skilled visas take 15 months to process. More than 58,000 applications for skilled visas, permanent and temporary, have been lodged with the Department of Home Affairs since March. Only 25%, that's about 14,000, have been finalised. Now, Anthony Albanese should bring together business, the unions and government to address the shortage and speed up the processes. It should not be impossible to approve all decision-ready temporary skilled visa applications for approved employers within a guaranteed four-week period and insist that the Department of Home Affairs report every six months on progress. And if the Department of Home Affairs needs more funding, provide the funding. The March budget papers show an $875 million drop in funding to migration-related expenses at that department. How smart's that? But let me make one simple proposal. There are thousands of pensioners out there, skilled, reliable and committed. They won't re-enter the workforce because their income will affect their pension entitlement. Why don't we say to all pensioners who want to work, apply for the job, give them a new classification, say pensioner classification, allow them to work, earn income, pay taxes, but what they earn will not affect their pension entitlement.
Why do we squander skilled and committed Australians who could help add to the nation's productivity quotient? But as always, we're burdened with stupid rules and the loser is the nation's economic well-being. Employers are crying out for staff. There's a ready-made workforce out there in Australia, skilled and committed pensioners. Invite them into the workforce and let them retain their pensions and give the immediate repair of the visa system the highest priority. Well, let's go to Britain and David Maddox, the political editor, editor of The Express Online. Now, you can keep up to date by reading David at express.co.uk. And I must say, he writes splendidly. David, there's plenty happening. Back to Boris. Now, this fellow Steve Baker is a longtime critic of Boris Johnson. He's called for him to resign, but he's also now a candidate in the forthcoming elections for the 1922 committee in a fortnight. 18 officers and executives to be elected by 213 backbench Tory MPs and 51 parliamentary se private secretaries. What clout, David, does this MP Steve Baker have? He's an interesting character, actually. He uh, used to be an ally of Boris's. Uh, he was one of the ones who persuaded Boris to go and support Brexit all the way back in 2016. Uh, and he was quite a senior person in the uh, organisation called Vote Leave, which was responsible for that. But uh, in recent years, the two have fallen out badly. Could be cynical and say it's because Steve Baker didn't get a job in the Cabinet as a minister, uh, but he also has uh, ambitions for the leadership himself. Mm. He was a big, big critic on uh, the lockdown policy. He thought we should have been unlocking much earlier. Uh, so in that sense, Steve was definitely on the side of the angels as far as I was concerned. But David, and, it, uh, now, you know, so now, uh, he's, now he's weighing in on party gate and tax as well. So, so uh, I just got to say to you, if that 1922 committee election results in a majority of backbenchers being elected mm. who want Boris Johnson yeah. gone, uh, is there talk that yeah. they'll change the rules and allow for another challenge when the existing rules prevent a further challenge within 12 months. That exactly, and that's precisely the point. Normally, the 1922 committee is something that nobody would care about at all. They wouldn't bother about at all. It's just a kind of administrative behind the scene. We call it the men in grey coats sort of committee. And uh, yeah, but the whole point of this is that they want Boris out. The only way they can change the rules to get him out quickly is uh, to take control of this committee, uh, which they're going to try and do next week. And the, the important thing here is, is that they're all terrified that Boris, in, a, in an attempt to save his premiership, is going to call an early election in September. So they want the ability to have a vote on him before he does that. But I think Johnson's allies, I must say, are right when they say that changing the rules would permanently destabilise the Conservatives. In other words, any leader could then be subject to a no-confidence vote in his or her leadership whenever the 1922 committee so decide. How do you read that, David? I, I, I see a lot of merit in that argument. Uh, and, you know, there's a reason that the 12-month rule was in place. But on the other hand, these are fairly exceptional circumstances. We're in an extremely destabilised leadership, leadership situation with the Conservative Party at the moment. 
uh, if if he was in a stronger position, if he was able to exert his authority, this wouldn't even be a question and there wouldn't be any votes. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, I could see the argument both ways, but this is a this is the problem we're in. Mm. He said at the G7 summit in Germany on Monday that the question about the leadership was resolved. I mean, he is a survivor. Just yes or no. Mm. Do you think he can survive? Yes, I do, because as you say, he's a survivor. He, he, he's one of these people. He's, a, he's like a. Uh, I, I wouldn't call him a villain because, I, but, but he's like one of these movie villains who, you know, every time you think they're dead, he just gets up, brushes yes. himself off, and yes. he's back again. You know, yes, it's, that's uh, right. It's, uh, well, well, let's let's know. go to, let's go to these by-elections because there's talk that these defeats of the Conservatives in the Wakefield and Tiverton and Honiton by-elections was a humiliating defeat. That word's been used for the Conservatives, but there wasn't mm. much joy for either of the major parties. Now, I should say to our viewers, voting's not compulsory in Britain. But David, am I right in saying that the turnout in Wakefield was only 20%? In other words, 20% of eligible voters turned out. That makes it one of the lowest in history. Is that true? That is correct. And uh, the, the actual lowest in history was only 18.2%. Uh, but that was an absolute safe seat. It was a foregone conclusion and nobody really expected anything else. This one was actually inferior, tightly contested seat, important seat, and yet only one in five voters could be bothered Turn to go up. out. And a lot of that was because Conservatives stayed at home, but also it was because uh, the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, is the, the, one of the least inspiring people on the planet well, and uh, just couldn't persuade people to go out and back his party. Well, let, let's come to Starmer because all the focus is on the Conservatives, but as you have written... They're not figures which suggest that Labor and the Lib Dems would sweep the country in any election, general election or by-election. Now, in Tiverton and Honiton, the Labor Liberal vote combined went from 25% to 29 <laughs> The Conservative vote collapsed yeah. from 43 to 20%. 20,000 Conservative voters stayed at home. So, David, there's not much joy yeah. here for either major party, is there? No, there isn't. And uh, the, the protest from the Conservatives was not to vote for somebody else. It was to stay at home, which kind of suggests that in a general election, even perhaps with Boris, uh, if a Conservative vote comes out, they'll win again. Uh, because there's, there's absolutely, there seems to be no appetite really for Labour, even though they're slightly ahead in the polls, but it's only slightly ahead in the polls, which is pretty normal for a mid-term government, really. David, major political parties, though, around the world are under siege. We see, we see this now in America, uh, Democrats and Republicans. We see it in France. We've seen it here in Australia. We have a mm. Labor Party in government here whose primary vote in the May election, and it's compulsory here, was 32%. So the Tory party chairman wow. now, in the light of the by-election results, Sir Oliver Dowden has resigned. Is there a chance, mm. and I think you've written this, that the very talented 42-year-old Chancellor... Rishi Sunak, who's only been in Parliament for seven years, is there talk that he may resign? Well, there certainly was on uh, Friday morning last week. We we're all on Rishi watch, as we called it. And this is because him and Oliver Dowden are very close friends. Oliver Dowden had, uh, in theory, agreed to run Rishi's leadership campaign when the time came. So there was a feeling that, uh, you know, with Oliver going... 
uh, Rishi would be the next one to go and effectively trigger a no confidence in Boris and an exit. See, when you say go, when you say go, do you mean out of the parliament or just go from the chancellorship? Just from the chancellorship, right? Because I mean, uh, a lot of us had a lot of us had written him off as a potential leadership yes. candidate, but. Certainly, what I was—I've be, been told this week. I was—I was having dinner with a cabinet minister yeah. this week. I, I just showed, and he—he uh, was—he's very—he's very ambitious. Yes, he? very ambitious. I just showed our viewers this Rishi Sunak. I know you think he's got a funny name. He was born to Indian parents who emigrated from East Africa. Hmm. He's an Oxford graduate, a Stanford University graduate, and a Fulbright scholar. His wife's a billionaire. But in April, he became the first yeah. chancellor in British history to be sanctioned for breaking the law while in office and was issued with a fixed penalty notice for breaching COVID restrictions. David, does this one was, breach disqualify him forever? No, and, and, and in fact, everybody felt quite sorry for him for it because he, his, his only sin was to turn up for a meeting early where some cake for the Prime Minister's birthday was being passed around. And uh, a lot of people think he shouldn't have been fined anyway. His bigger problem is that he's put up taxes, which has really annoyed uh, conservative backbenchers and, and people like me mm. who are having to pay them. And, uh, and his wife, for a long time, was avoiding, legally, I should say, yeah. legally avoiding paying tax for the non-don status. That was a much bigger problem for him than being fined for a, a piece of cake he didn't even eat. See, <laughs> you, you, you've made a very valid point, and this relates to us, David, that you say a senior minister has privately expressed to you concern that the Conservative Party is not, quote, capable of selecting people who think like Conservatives. And you're saying that the candidates yeah. in the two by-elections were not maybe the reason Conservative voters decided not to go to the polls, but they didn't help. Now, Wakefield voted 66% in favour of leaving in the Brexit debate. Yeah. And they offered a Conservative candidate, Nadeem Ahmed, who was quoted as saying, Brexit was built on lies. How does that help? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it caused outrage. And the significant thing there was a, a lot of Conservative members of Parliament were going to go up to campaign to help him. And they read that out. It was actually in the independent newspaper. But they read that and they told me, no, you, you think we're going to go and support this guy? If, yeah. You know, all we're fighting for here and trying to get out of the European Union, all these people trying to make us join again. And we've got a candidate who's yeah. telling us that it's all a bunch of lies. We're not we're not going to go and help him. And, you know, that's right. This is and symptomatic then, of the problem. Yeah. And then, and, and then the female candidate in Tiverton and Honiton couldn't say she had confidence in the prime minister. One one MP yeah. questioned whether she believed in anything, conservative or otherwise. I mean, I like the comment, David, of the frustrated veteran MP who told you, we appear to still be selecting Lib Dems with blue rosettes. <laughs> the, the, the only real conservatives amongst the newer MPs are the Red Wallers in the North and in the Midlands yes. who got in because the party didn't expect yeah. them to win. Well, David, I suppose uh, you've got the same problems that we've got over there, Johnson and Starmer. You know, it could be gone, but as you say, there's no Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair waiting to replace them. Did, did, just before you go, did one MP actually text you to say, this is a brilliant quote, the next Conservative leader has to have integrity, courage and show leadership. So that is all the current Cabinet out of the running. Did someone text you with that? <laughs>
Yeah, that is absolutely true. And, uh, and that's uh, quite a widely held opinion amongst uh, members of parliament, I can tell you. It's, it, wasn't, it wasn't just a one of them. Uh, and actually party donors and all sorts, but... <laughs> I don't know. Um, All right. I'm not sure where I'm putting my money for the next leader, I can tell you that. No, that's right. Well, listen, great to talk to you. It's really enjoyable. But, I mean, it's good theatre and it makes for good conversation, David. The psychodrama never ends. Absolutely, never ends. A long-running play. It's better than The Mousetrap, I've got to tell you. All right, David, there he is. (laughs) (laughs) David Maddox in Britain. What a story. But it's not much different from what we've got here, is it? Talk to you next week, David. There he is, David Maddox. Now, look, the upper house in the Queensland Parliament was abolished in 1921. That means simply, if you've got a majority in the one house in the Queensland Parliament, then you can do as you like. And that, on the evidence, is exactly how the Palaszczuk government seems to be operating. I mentioned only a couple of weeks ago the scandal in relation to DNA testing failures in Queensland, such that police are re-examining all sexual assault cases dating back to 2018, which were initially deemed not to have enough DNA evidence for further testing. The forensic biologist, Dr Kirsty Wright, who ran the National Criminal Investigation DNA database, labelled what was going on as, quote, the biggest forensic disaster. She said there is nothing anywhere in the world that is like this. And in terms of the scale, how many years have these issues gone on for? Well, then we had the Queensland Integrity Commissioner, Dr Nicola Stepanoff, who was investigating the widespread failure of lobbyists to declare meetings, who attended the meetings with ministers and government officials. Get the drift? Lobbying ministers for obviously commercial gain. That's how lobbyist operates. You know the minister, get the result, and you get a cut of the action. Well, according to the law in Queensland, meetings with ministers and government officials have to be declared, along with those who attend the meetings. Well, the Integrity Commissioner, Nicola Stepanoff, was onto something. She said she knew she should upset a few people and she sought approval from the Public Service Commission, which has budgetary control of her office and the Department of Premier and Cabinet for a forensic examination of the laptops and mobiles in her office. She suspected there was a leak. It was just before the October 2020 state election. Premier Palaszczuk was being criticised for engaging two former state Labor secretaries to run her campaign. Well, the then Director General of Premier Palaszczuk's department refused the request by Dr Stepanov. Instead, Dr Stepanov was told by the Public Service Commission and the Director General of the Premier's department to stay at home. But then it's alleged these officials, while she was at home, overrode the security codes to gain access to her office seized a laptop and mobile phones, and later wiped the contents. Premier Palaszczuk has repeatedly refused refused Dr Stepanov's request to have her treatment investigated. Dr Stepanov has resigned. Now we learn this week that a Labor lobbyist, Evan Moorhead, and his lobbying company were hired for a contract with the Queensland Building and Construction Commission by the board chairman, Dick Williams, who was president of the Queensland Labor Party when Mr Moorhead was its state secretary. Williams allegedly signed on Moorhead's lobbying firm, authorising, quote, an exception to official procurement rules, unquote. That would have to be approved by the then commissioner. Well, the then commissioner, Brett Bassett, allegedly approved. 
Months before his engagement by the QBCC in late 2019, Mr Moorhead left Premier Palaszczuk's office where he was her top political advisor, which prompts a simple question, does it not? Why, since Mr Moorhead quit the Premier's office, has his company become the most in-demand lobbying firm in Queensland, commanding hundreds of meetings with ministers and senior staff? Well, this week, the stuff has hit the fan. The former university boss, Peter Coldrake, has pulled the rug from under Moorhead and co and the government in a scathing review of culture and accountability in the public sector. He is recommending that lobbyists who go from involvement in an election campaign into business be barred from dealing with the government for four years. That's a direct response to the fact that former ALP secretaries Cameron Milner and Evan Moorhead headed Queensland Labor's election strategy as they continued to lobby the government on behalf of corporate clients, some of whom were the subject of announcements by the Premier and her ministers before and during the election campaign. Well, Premier Palaszczuk said should accept all the recommendations of the Coldrake Review, which will cripple the business model of Milner and Moorhead. Professor Coldrake gets it right, and this applies to the photiosses in New South Wales and lobbyists in all states when he says, quote, the growth of lobbying activity reveals what this review believes is a market failure, the failure of government itself to be able to deal with business and community interests without the involvement of a paid intermediary." Unquote. Professor Coldrake, the former Queensland University of Technology Vice-Chancellor, has urged Premier Palaszczuk to use the review as a wake-up call to support a more open and transparent government. His report is titled, quote, Let the Sun Shine In, and makes 14 recommendations, all of which Premier Palaszczuk says will be accepted. That'll be interesting. One recommendation is, that secret cabinet agendas, submissions and decisions be proactively published online within 30 business days, argued Professor Coldrake. The community certainly tires very quickly when politicians of any colour and in any jurisdiction hide behind cabinet or commercial inconfidence to fend off legitimate questioning on even routine matters." Unquote. Well, Premier Palaszczuk said she welcomed the findings. I wonder if she's read them. What is to happen to the outgoing Integrity Commissioner, Nicola Stepanov, over her unresolved claims that she was bullied and harassed for doing the job, and that her emails were either doctored or scrubbed? The problems Professor Coldrake identifies are by no means unique to Queensland. It is a start, but as they say, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. How will things change in Queensland in the future. There are a lot of vested interests in Queensland today, especially lobbyists and businesses who use lobbyists who'll have their noses out of joint. Anastasia Palaszczuk might decide that it's all too difficult and hand over the job to someone else. Look, before we go, there is no denying that China's expansionism is worrying, especially at a time when political leadership in the West is so weak. From Macron in France to Ardern in New Zealand, Johnson in the UK, that Olaf Scholz in Germany, and of course the doozy of them all, Biden in America. With this group of leaders, is it any wonder Xi's China feels emboldened? The Chinese President Xi Jinping is a force to be reckoned with. He's a totally different kettle of fish compared to his predecessors. 
Gone are the days where the Chinese leadership wanted to participate in the international order and seek warm and friendly diplomatic relations. Xi Jinping thinks he is the next Mao Zedong. Modern China is starting to unravel. Later this year, Xi is expected to secure a third term, which has not been achieved since Chairman Mao. There was always a two-term limit in China until Xi and his supporters bullied their way to overthrowing that rule. Unlike the moderniser, Deng Xiaoping, who attempted to open up the country and its economy to the rest of the world, President Xi has clamped down on that drastically. Deng always warned against excessive concentrations of power, noting the limits to any one person's knowledge. But Xi Jinping has no time for those warnings. Instead, he is everything. The party boss, military chief, head of state, and chairman of numerous policy-making bodies. Chinese Community Party newspapers now talk of living through an era whose greatness is signalled by the emergence of Xi, a man of, quote, outstanding leadership and majestic personality, unquote. It's pretty frightening stuff. Last month, the Chinese Communist Party announced a ban, in effect, on grumbling, with retired senior members forbidden from making, quote, negative political speeches or commenting publicly on important policies. There's definitely an undercurrent of disgruntled Chinese officials out there, but the dissent will be swept under the carpet. The reality is this. The Chinese Communist Party of today is a very different Chinese Communist Party from that of 20 years ago. I'm all for good relations with China, but when they start imposing trade restrictions on us with no justification or muscling Pacific nations to allow them to move in and build military bases, then I have a problem. And when they cozy up to Russia and see what Putin is allowed to get away with in Ukraine, that means we will see more instances like the one this week, where China sent a record number of warplanes into Taiwan's air defence identification zone. Aggravating acts everywhere you turn, no matter what part of the world. On May 26 this year, a Chinese fighter jet intercepted an Australian surveillance aircraft near the Paracel Islands and then damaged it with flares and chaff. David Livingston, a former Australian diplomat, has said China has a plan to challenge the West's commitment to military deployments in the South China Sea and divide the US from its allies. Livingston writes, and I quote, does Australia have a plan to protect surveillance aircraft from similar incidents and potentially worse? How far will Australia go to enforce its rights under international law? These are fundamental considerations, he says, in a strategy. And if they're missing from operational plans, disaster is just around the corner, unquote. I fear that while we talk about using the correct pronouns and whether or not the Australian flag is a symbol of dispossession, the Chinese Communist Party are gearing up their campaign of military assertiveness. John Anderson's not alone in wondering whether we'll be equal to the emerging national security challenge. What do you think? That's it from me tonight on ADH-TV. I'll see you tomorrow night. Good night.